You can, uh, again, have your Bibles handy. No particular passage to uh, ask you to turn to this morning, but have your Bibles handy. Uh, We are in the second part of interpreting prophecy. Uh, Last week we talked about several elements. We'll review them in just a moment uh, as we continue to explore how to interpret the Bible, how we do it at Legacy Baptist Church. As we begin, I'd like to read you a little something. Um, I was listening to a man this week. He's a political commentator. He is not a, a... theologian or a pastor. However, he is an outspoken Christian man, uh, but he's an outspoken Christian man that does not see the world as we do. Uh, if I can say it this way, he, he sees it far, far more through a, a Catholic worldview or an, a um, maybe an Episcopalian, Anglican type worldview than through um, a a worldview of, if I can put it this way, a worldview of, of Reformation thinking or a worldview of Protestantism. Um, of course, Baptists isn't really a product of Reformation thinking either, but uh, there, there are a lot of similarities between them. And he does not take the Bible very literally. Let me read you what he said this past week. He said, The Bible contains myths and legends as well as literal history. To be clear, I believe the Bible was inspired by God and is the truest book we have about God, but that doesn't mean that every word shall be take, should be taken literally. In fact, it means the opposite. Biblical literalism, the idea that every word in the Bible describes an actual event and is not meant allegorically or metaphorically, is a more or less recent phenomenon in the Christian church. Early church fathers like Origen and St. Augustine reject literalism, specifically citing the creation story in Genesis as allegorical. The Catholic Church has never adopted literalism. It came into play in a big way around the 1700s, around the same time science was beginning to bring some biblical stories into question. Maybe it was a way of responding to that uh, or holding the line against science. Or maybe it just followed the Reformation idea that Scripture is the only source of theological truth not the church. But it really sells the Bible short, he says. He says, quoting here, right? It really sells the Bible short. If every word in the Bible were literally true, it could never express the deepest truths of all. The fact is, there are different kinds of narratives designed to express different types of truths. Now, some of this we'd agree with, right? Others of this, though, he's taking much of what we're saying about different types of literature, and he's drawing it to a conclusion that is beyond one that, that we at Legacy Baptist Church would be comfortable drawing. He says the Bible contains uh, all of these different types of literature. For instance, if I tell you that I saw a... I saw a building on fire on the way to work and I ran into the building and braved the flames to rescue two children. That story had better be literally true or else every piece of information it is relaying to you is a lie. It is me trying to tell you I am a hero and I'm not a hero. But if I say once upon a time there were three bears or, quote, there was a man who had two sons, uh, you don't ask me for the bear's uh, address or the names of the sons because you know that I'm trying to convey a kind of wisdom um, that, that uh, I'm trying to convey a kind of wisdom that historical stories don't necessarily tell. A play like Hamlet is more truthful for being a piece of fiction because the fact that it is fiction lets us know that it is conveying a genius's ver- vision of the human experience rather than a series of events that just happen to occur in real life. A story like Job probably begins with an underlying historical event, but like the story of Faust, it has has been uh, it has been elaborated on by the human mind into a legend in order to bring out the fullness of its revelation. Now and then a special event comes along which captures both an historical event and the deeper truths of allegory, such as Washington crossing the Delaware, a true story with allegorical power. Also, he says, I believe the resurrection of Christ is a story like that. It must be literally true in order for us to be freed from sin and to confirm that there is a life beyond life that makes sense of our morality and our human aspirations. But it is also a mighty allegory for the way the world continually murders truth and the fact that the truth nonetheless never dies. And I know that for a fact because the Bible tells me so. The idea of a literal interpretation of Scripture is actually not a very new phenomenon in the church. Even in the Catholic Church, Pope Gregory called Gregory the Great who lived in the 6th century from 540 to 604 AD, had a strong insistence upon a literal historical interpretation of the text in opposition to figures such as Origen, Jerome, and Augustine. He mentions the Reformers. What the Reformers discovered about the Bible was not new. It just wasn't mainstream until they found it, until those things bubbled back up to the surface. 
He places church revelation on par with the biblical narrative, which changes the whole worldview and function of the Bible in the church, something that, of course, the Catholics have um, uh, believed and, and had, have held on to for quite some time now. I don't believe he's Catholic, but uh, borrows much from the reading of the worldview and such. Now, let's just make something clear about this. As, as we read this quote, this is a perfectly valid worldview, and it can bring us to many of the same conclusions in the faith that you and I come to, even though his interpretive methods are different. If I deem the communication of truth to be valid, then I trust it, right? We, we say that as well, except that we deem the whole of the communication to be valid, whereas uh, as we read this quote, it seems as though there are certain elements of the communication that are not valid in themselves, but only valid as an underlying philosophy or ideology. And that's the problem. The problem is that if I see these things as just anecdotes, just allegories, then I don't necessarily regard them as authoritative. So the Bible says the universe was created in six literal days because this is only a metaphor to communicate a truth, however, not a record of history. I can ignore it. However, as we read the text, I believe that we can read it and see a pretty clear record of history. And of course, I'm not alone. To this end, those that would follow the worldview like what I've read here and quoted this morning would see the principles of the Old Testament as primarily being thoughts of a bygone era that should be rejected by modernism, only allowing its underlying truths to take hold. And this leads, and and here's the point, this leads to a very different type of Christianity. Not necessarily an invalid type of Christianity, but a very different type of Christianity. One where I can ignore various elements of Bible history and lessons because I deem them to be not an extension of the deeper truths God wanted to communicate, but merely the unnecessary details of the lives and cultures of the authors through whom God chose to communicate. These beliefs don't make those who hold them bad Christians, but it will fundamentally alter their Christian lives. It creates what we would consider a compromised Christian, unable to live out the fullest potential of his life in Christ, Because many of the lessons of God's word get muddied under the weight of society and culture. This is why there was a Reformation to begin with. Everything in the Bible became so mystical, so spiritualized, that it became meaningless. With only the fundamental truths being carried into lives. But because those truths were only seen as rooted in myth and allegory, They didn't connect to real life. They didn't seem attainable, nor was it necessary for them to be attainable. And so they essentially became ignored. When we open the door to the idea that the Bible is not to be regarded as absolute truth, we give our hearts a foothold with which to deceive and confuse us into missing important elements of this life in Christ. So what are we saying here? Why did I give you this? I gave you this example because it is a perfectly valid worldview. When you come across someone that thinks in, in, in a certain way and you say, how can you be a Christian and still think these things? It's not because they hate God or they think the Bible is trash or they just woke up one day and said, I'm just going to throw out vast portions of the Bible. It's that we see things differently from a worldview level, from an interpretive level that they have decided that certain elements of their interpretive method are going to become metaphorical, allegorical, that they are going to spiritualize things where perhaps uh, others would literal, make things more literal. And I wanted to introduce you to that. I wanted to read that to you this morning to let you gain a little bit of perspective. I know that when I get to heaven, I as father and husband and I as pastor am going to stand before God and God's going to say, you missed it here, 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 here and here, right? I I don't make any bones about the fact that I'm not a perfect man. I don't pretend as though I know everything. I don't pretend as though Legacy Baptist Church has everything right and none of us should. But if we didn't think we were doing it right, we wouldn't be doing it. 
And what we do, we, we do our best to do prayerfully, carefully, and to give God the benefit of the doubt. And that's why we assume what we assume. That's why we assume that God's communicated with us. That's why we assume that God wants to communicate with us. That's why we assume these things, because if I have to back myself up a little bit to play it safe, as I had one professor say in college, better I stand before God and God says you could have loosened up a little bit than to stand before God and, and, and God to say you, you, you went way too far. Now again, that's not everyone. And this series is not intended for us to stand over people and judge them on their thinking, the way that they approach the Bible. We live in a world of ideas. And those ideas are founded upon truth and then taking truth and drawing it to conclusions. Not everyone identifies truth properly. And even those that identify truth properly don't always draw them to the same conclusions. And that's okay. That means we get to talk. That means we get to pray together. That means we get to draw closer to God and closer to one another by the process of seeking and finding truth. Not making truth. We don't make truth, right? We, we find it. We identify it. God, God's truth is there. It's for us to identify. It's not for us to create. So as, as, as we interact with people that don't believe what we believe about the end times, that don't believe what we believe about the, 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 the nature of certain theological points, let's remember here that none of us is perfect. But let's remember as well that Jesus taught us that where there is truth, there is unity. And where there's not unity, it's because somewhere along the line, some truth got lost. So we elevate truth. And we believe, as uh, was somewhat condescendingly mentioned, not necessarily condescendingly, but, but uh, as was mentioned in that quote that I gave you, almost uh, as, as if it's something that, that is wrong, we elevate what we know. We elevate what, what, what we know God has given to us. Free from the corruption of the politics and the innuendos and such because we believe that God has preserved and inspired, not just inspired, but preserved His Word. And so we rest on it and we build ourselves on that. Others choose to do it a different way. We'll all stand before God. And we need to reconcile with how we're going to do that. This is how we choose to do it. And I believe that it is also interpretively the most consistent, which is why we are where we are. I, I hope that, that made sense and I... I I hope it helped a little bit, at least for perspective's sake. So remember where we are now. We're still on how we interpret our final week of that. We talked about the foundations of biblical interpretation that we, that we uh, interpret in a manner that we, we assume that God desired to communicate with us and we assume that God's Word is unified and we assume that God's Word is accurate and we assume that God's Word is spiritual. And then we, we built upon that the general truths of interpretation that we interpret literally and grammatically and historically and contextually and prayerfully. And those build on our foundational assumptions. And then the, fr the general framework that we believe is accurate is, is today called dispensationalism, uh, has been called many other things throughout history, and that, that, there is, uh, that there are various ages in the church where God, He's the same God, He has a unified plan, but He's working in different ways depending on the extent to which He has revealed Himself to mankind. And so He, extend, he, he reveals Himself more and more in each age, and with each level of revelation comes extra, um, an extra degree of accountability. And in each degree of revelation and, and to each level of accountability, we found that man has failed miserably at fulfilling God's expectations. That as God gives more information and makes him more accountable, mankind rebels each time. And uh, until the final picture where God just does it all. And we'll realize that, that everything from start to finish is about God. And now we're building the specific rules of interpretation. Last week we spoke of three specific rules of interpretation together. We talked about time in prophecy. That biblical prophecy does not operate in time as much as it operates in space. That the prophets saw events often in sequence, but not necessarily uh, with any statement as to when they would happen or how much time would pass between elements of the prophecy. So you could have one prophecy where the first half is fulfilled here and the second half is fulfilled 2,000 years later, though it was given as one prophecy at the time. Uh, we then consider dual fulfillment. 
And this idea of dual fulfillment is that under our dispensational framework, there's allowance for the idea that a prophecy can have two fulfillments. One prophecy can be fulfilled twice in history, a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And the, the near fulfillment is generally there to validate the reality of the far fulfillment. It's there to teach us elements of the character of the far fulfillment. So the second, the far fulfillment, fulfills the prophecy most literally and most fully. But by doing this, we, we have this near fulfillment that validates the far fulfillment and that teaches us about it. Finally, last week, we considered the type-anti-type relationship. And we mentioned that a type is a representative relationship uh, in which certain persons, certain events, certain institutions of the Old Testament relate to and teach about and prophetically promise elements of a New Testament anti-type, a person, an event, or a institution. We talked about that quite thoroughly. I'm not going to review it today for sake of time. Of course, the message is always online if you want to listen to it. These types were actual events, actual people, actual institutions, but they served a prophetic purpose. That is, God uh, used them or created them, depending. Some of them he actually asked for, like the temple and the tabernacle. Others uh, we, we see more organically in history. But God used them to teach a prophetic lesson about something in the New Testament. Uh, we see this with the temple. We see this with the sacrifices. We see this with the feast days. We see this with Melchizedek. We see this uh, to some degree with the ark. And all of these, uh, we see a typological prophetic element to them that is promising something greater and something deeper in a New Testament reality. So those were the three elements of prophetic interpretation that we talked about last week. That as we're interpreting prophecy, we're looking for these things. We expect these things. These things don't throw us. They don't confuse us. And they don't cause us to say, well, because we don't see this quite the way we would expect, we're just going to make it all allegorical and it's all just going to happen in the heavenlies and we're never going to see any of it. We, we can't do that. Because if we do that, then what we're saying is, though God for generations interpreted prophecy literally and that he brought prophecy about literally, then somehow in our generation, all of that just goes away. And now everything is metaphorical and now everything is symbolic. That being said, however, what we are going to talk about today is symbols in prophecy. Prophetic revelation comes in many forms. One such form is the type-anti-type relationship, but there are several others, other forms that are slightly, they, they, they are, they're different. They, they bear considering individually. They don't have a prophetic element to them about the future, but they do have a representative element about the future. Do you understand what I mean there? So a type, and we, 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 we settled this last week, a type is a very exclusive thing. It, it, it's designed, it's intended, it's prophetic. Many people broaden types to mean much more than that. I think we, we do ourselves a disservice when we do because a type is indeed prophetic and it has a prophetic element. However, symbols are all over the place. Things in the Old Testament that mirror concepts in the New. They don't necessarily have a prophetic element, but they yet have a very close relationship Symbolic relationships and prophecy, many of the things that we might be tempted to understand to be types, fall short of the clarity that might make us comfortable to call it a prophetic type. Symbols are, again, actual people, actual events, actual objects, but they represent something else. The major difference comes in the fact that symbols are generic, whereas type, the type-anti-type relationship is very specific and has a fulfillment idea. So last time we mentioned the tabernacle, and we mentioned the tabernacle as a type of Christ. Hebrews 10, 8, 9, and 10 tells us this explicitly. The first tabernacle looked forward, that, that was the tabernacle in the wilderness, it looked forward to the type of Jesus Christ that he would, uh, as how he would function as a, a type of worship, as a type of uh, fellowship, bringing us to God. That's why when Jesus died, the, the veil in the temple, right, was rent in half, showing that the way to the holiest of holies was now open. Uh, the, the showbread was to uh, be a, a type of Christ as the bread of life. The um, candlestick was intended to be a, a type of Christ as the light of life. All elements of worship and how we, we worship together with the Lord. Of course, the, the um, altar of incense is the prayers of the saints, and everything has a typological idea that would show us how we will worship 
God through Christ in the New Testament. We are literally walking around as temples of Christ. We, we, we talk about that idea of our bodies being the temples of Christ, but the, the deeper foundational element to that is because we have Christ in us, the entirety of the, the, the system of the temple, of the tabernacle, is being fulfilled in our worship if we're doing it properly. Symbols, on the other hand, illustrate concepts but have no definite or specific fulfillment. So think of the manna in the wilderness. Jesus Christ related himself to the manna in the wilderness and he did that in, um, well, as we see in Exodus 16, he did that in the book of John. He related himself to the man in the wilderness. The manna that the Israelites ate in the wilderness did not point to any definite ministry of Christ or event necessarily, but rather it serves simply as a symbol of Jesus as the bread of life generally. We can point to no direct fulfillment of manna, just a strong relationship. This is a symbol. And I'll, I'll consider it, this in, in a deeper way and consider more examples in a few moments. Let's consider a few principles regarding symbols as we see them in the Bible. Prophetic symbols. Symbols need an object, they need a referent, and they need a meaning. Here I give you four. The burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. The referent is God. The burning bush is a symbol of God. God is holy. God is a consuming fire. We know that God spoke out of the bush, but it's intended to reflect the idea of God being a holy, consuming fire. Manna, Exodus 16 we talked about, is if Jesus supernaturally gives sustenance for life. Uh, dry bones in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel sees a valley of dry bones, right? And, and God allows those dry bones to get flesh on them again and to stand up and to live. And this is a picture of Israel. And that Israel, though it will, it will be dry bones, will be restored from spiritual deadness unto life. The four beasts of Daniel 7, uh, also seen in Daniel 2, as we talked about this morning in the image of Nebuchadnezzar. They are symbolic. They are symbols of the nations that would come in successive order. And, and God's plan that God sees these nations as beastly the characteristics of each beast reflecting the characteristics of each empire. So in order for a symbol to be valid, it, it needs to have an object, something that, that the object refers to or symbolizes, and then it needs to actually have a valid, consistent, and notable meaning which links the object in the Old Testament to its element of the New Testament teaching. Uh, some simple examples of this uh, are, are found here. But we, uh, we, we can take this and we can broaden it. And we, can, we can talk about it throughout the Old Testament. Symbols are everywhere in the Old Testament as the various elements of the historical accounts of Israel uh, can be drawn out to teach us ele- uh, things about the elements of um, worship, Christ, the end times, and such. The second point that we need to make here as we set down some principles. First, symbols need an object, a referent, and a meaning. Second, the meaning of a symbol should be dictated by scriptural principle. In other words, uh, we, we ought to be able to see some link to the New Testament teaching that says there's something here. And we don't always have to do that. There are some things that we can say are symbolic in the Old Testament where we don't see the most explicit link. And we can do that with symbols because symbols aren't as important as types. I would encourage you not ever to do that with types. With symbols, we can get away with that. But there is a a, a real um, important principle of of saying unless we're going to see everything as something, which some people do, then let's start linking it to some New Testament principles. In regard to the burning bush, God told Moses as he approached the bush to take off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground. All throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find fire as a symbol of holiness and judgment and purity. God calls himself in Deuteronomy 4.24 a consuming fire, and this is restated in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. And so we can see a symbolic representation there of God in the burning bush. In regard to manna, uh, we talked about the idea of manna in Exodus 16 being given to the, the children of Israel. Jesus said this in John chapter 6, verses 31 to 35. He said, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life Unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. 
He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now, somebody might say, well, can we place this into a type-anti-type relationship? We might very well be able to. I think there's an argument to bring this into a type-anti-type type uh, sort of relationship. But the reason why I put it in, into symbols is specifically because we're not seeing an event here that's being prophetically fulfilled. But we're seeing an idea here that's being rehearsed. So in other words, in the same way manna had a specific purpose, in the same way God fed them with manna, so too Jesus Christ is the sustenance. But there is a deep breakdown of the symbolic relationship with manna as it continues. And this is what we're going to talk about next. Now, the point number three in our, in our teaching on symbols is that the meaning of a symbol is exclusive to its context. Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, one of the things we need to be careful about is that we don't cause symbols to become, like a type, a wholesale representation of every aspect of a reference life and ministry. Melchizedek, we know very little about him, but everything we know about him parallels Jesus Christ. As we think of Noah and the ark, uh, the, the, the various elements of the judgment of God in the days of Noah are paralleled in the judgment of God in the New Testament. Matthew 24, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, they all speak of the ark in relation to judgment. The type-anti-type relationship is so deeply clear, and we can draw lessons from the New Testament Elements by the Old Testament type because there's a prophetic fulfillment there. But we need to be careful with that as we think of something like manna. See, because manna was many things, wasn't it? It was divinely given. It was nourishing. It was a light bread. It was sweet. It appeared with the dew in the morning and melted away. It molded and stank if it was left out for more than the day, if it was not all used by the end of that, that day, except on the Sabbath. But there's only one characteristic of manna that Jesus appeals to when he's speaking in John 6, right? He appeals to the reality that he is a sustenance, a divinely given sustenance. Now, if we try to typologically say manna is Christ, well, then we get ourselves into trouble. We cannot say that Jesus was light and sweet, and we cannot say that he melted away with the dawn, and we cannot say that he would mold at the end of the day, right? Now, you say, Pastor, you take that a little literally? Maybe. If you want to argue that it's a type, that's fine. But what I'm saying is, manna does not appear to be a prophetic promise of Christ as much as it is that Jesus is to us as manna was to Israel. And if we see it that way, then it falls into symbolism, not type, typology. Pastor, you're splitting hairs. I'm sorry if I'm splitting hairs. Yeah, as you sometimes have to do, go ahead and chew the meat, spit out the bones. That's good. So we consider this idea. I'm going to give you one more. The symbolism of a lion. Jesus is often symbolized as a lion. In the Bible, a lion is a symbol of something that is ferocious and strong, and through his strength and ferocity, he commands power and dominion. Uh, the Bible calls him the greatest of the beasts. Now, the interesting thing is both Jesus and Satan are likened to a lion in the scriptures, right? Revelation chapter 5, 5, one of the elders saith unto me, weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals. So here we see that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, that he is something specific to the tribe of Judah, to the nation of Israel. 1 Peter 5, 8 warns us, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, lions in the Old Testament are not typological significance for Christ or for Satan, a lion is a symbol. Both, uh, a lion is a symbol both for Christ and for Satan. As, as pertaining to Christ, the symbolic relationship between Christ and a lion is that he's strong, he's dominant, and he will fight for his own and he will conquer. Satan, the symbolic relationship between Satan and a lion is that he hunts and he ferociously devours the weak and the vulnerable. And so we can't say that there's a prophetic link between Christ and lions or between Satan and lions because we're only drawing out one particular characteristic of the lion and we're symbolically labeling Christ or symbolically labeling Satan with a characteristic to help link the two. Again, that's what I think we see with manna a little bit. We're not drawing out all the characteristics of manna and placing them on Christ, only the symbolic link 
between him being the bread of life provided by God divinely and Christ and, and manna being the sustenance for Israel provided by, by God divinely. And so we see that, that, that link there and, and hopefully that, that helps clear it up a little bit for us. We understand that the meaning of symbols is exclusive to its context, that the scripture will dictate the limits and the extent of its meaning. A final characteristic, there's generally one major point or resemblance in symbols. One major point or resemblance. Again, this is somewhat of an, of an extrapolation of the last point. When we see symbols attached to an object, there's one aspect of that symbol that the author is attempting to help us understand about that object. Rather than linking every aspect, we should look for what the author intended because that's how we believe the Bible should be interpreted. So we've talked about time and prophecy. We've talked about dual fulfillment and prophecy. We've talked about the type-antitype relationship. I've introduced to you this final one today, symbols and the, the relationship of symbols. How do symbols actually play out in prophecy, though? A prophecy that includes symbolism does not make the whole prophecy symbolic. Symbolism is everywhere in prophecy. In Revelation, we'll see beasts with strange heads and tails and biting and such. We'll see numbers. Sometimes those numbers are symbolic. Sometimes they're not. It's pretty clear to know when, when each one plays out. We'll see visions of things. Things with eyes all over them. Things with several heads. Things with more wings than uh, necessary. We'll see swords and bows and blood and signs and wonders. Symbolism will be everywhere as we walk through prophecy. But just because the prophecy uses symbolism, and this is what we read this morning when I quoted this, just because a parable is make-believe doesn't mean the parable never... Just, just doesn't mean that Jesus never said the parable, right? Just because sim, uh, a prophecy uses symbolism does not mean that the, prof, the prophecy is symbolic. Do you understand the difference? A literal prophecy that's using symbolism to tell you what's coming. Not a symbolic prophecy that's intended just to scare people into doing whatever the person who said the prophecy wants them to do, right? There's a difference between using symbolism, which can then be linked to a biblical reality, and so prophesy literally and actually symbolizing everything. Let me illustrate. The millennial kingdom is one of those things that people argue over. Is it literal? Literal thousand-year kingdom? Or is it some sort of symbolic reference? Depending on who you talk to, uh, many people believe that it's symbolic. Many people believe that we're living out the kingdom right now in our hearts uh, through Christ. Many believe that that, that, that that kingdom element is just speaking of the general prosperity of heaven or the general prosperity of the Christian life or whatever it might be. And one of the most potent symbols in kingdom theology is the lion and the lamb. My wife and I were in a store the other day and they had a, a, a sculpture of a lion and a lamb laying down together. It's a very strong and potent symbol in the theology of the, of the kingdom, in kingdom theology. Uh, not, not the actual label in kingdom theology. It's just the, we'll call it the theology of the kingdom. There's something called kingdom theology which we would not uh, be on board with. So Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 says this, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Here we see a description of a Messiah who would come from David and the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him. The text goes on to speak of the governance of his land in verses 5 and 6. And the righteous shall be the girdle of his loins. No, excuse me. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins. And faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the kid. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little child shall lead them. The idea here of the predator and the prey lying down together. It's a symbol of the extent of the peace that will be in that time. We have a symbolic concept here of a lion and a lamb or a wolf and a lamb in, as we see it explicitly here. Of the lion and the young calf and the fatling lying down together. 
and the child leading them. It doesn't explicitly mean that this event literally is going to happen, that you're going to see a bunch of kids walking around with lions and and, and cows. It might happen, but it it, it doesn't have to happen. The symbolism is intended to give us a, a picture of the extent of the peace, that the peace won't just be a government peace, that in the millennium, the innocent will have complete freedom. That you will not that, that even the the beasts will be subservient to the authority of God so that nothing will destroy in his mountain. Just because these, these, these symbols exist in the prophecy of the millennium does not mean that the promise of a millennial kingdom is symbolic, however. So while the numbers in the Bible are often symbolic. We see the number seven as having symbolic reference. Number six as having symbolic reference. The number 40 as having symbolic reference. These numbers, when they come up in Scripture, uh, they oftentimes have a symbolic element to them. That doesn't mean we don't take the fact that David ruled and reigned for 40 years literally. Or Solomon, 40 years literally. Or Saul, 40 years literally. Because that number comes up again and again does not mean that we are just that they're just throwing numbers out there for no reason. Because the number 1,000 is a millennial reign, it doesn't mean that we take it symbolically. The 144,000 Israelites in, the, in the, um, the, the book of the Revelation that are sealed were actually given the names of the tribes from which they come. We're actually told uh, elements of, uh, of detail which help us understand that we should probably take those numbers literally. Because there's detail. Because it's rooted in facts. We'll talk about that more when we get there. If there is some natural reason to see symbolism, we see symbolism. If there's not some natural reason to see symbolism, then we would believe to default to the literal. Just because prophecies contain symbolism, it does not give us license to believe the prophecies themselves are symbolic. And because we believe that God intends to communicate with us, we believe that God will make it clear when He's speaking in a symbolic way and when He's trying to communicate something in a way that we should take literally. So a prophecy that includes symbolism does not make the whole prophecy symbolic. Number two, in our prophetic rules for symbolism... Whenever a description is literally plausible, we don't seek to symbolize it. It's plausible that God would have a 1,000-year reign on this earth. We can even link it to promises in the Old Testament as to why God would want to have a 1,000-year reign on this earth. There's nothing in the text that lends itself to symbolizing it, so we don't symbolize it. As I mentioned, the Bible says that 144,000 of Israel will be sealed in the tribulation. There's nothing to indicate any level of symbolism. It gives us the, tw- the names of the 12 tribes through whom 12,000 from each tribe will be sealed. Uh, these are specific facts that help us, that lend to a literal interpretation, which means we have to forego what is natural in order to give it a symbolic representation. And the only reason why we would do that is because we're not comfortable with what the literal representation would mean to our theology. But that we don't have that problem with ours because we believe God has a plan for Israel. And so this is the idea. This is what we're doing here. We're trying to parse out how to interpret prophecy properly. And we look at time, and we look at dual fulfillment, and we look at type-anti-type, and we look at uh, uh, symbols, and we're taking all of these different elements of literature and we're bringing them together in such a way trying to decide what we should symbolize what we should take literally uh, what what is is prophetic and what is not there are two other elements of prophecy that I just want to touch on briefly and then we'll we'll put it all together here at the end prophecies and parables we've talked uh, extensively on Sunday evenings about what parables are and how we are to interpret parables parables are not allegories the teller has one single truth that he's teaching in a parable it has a definite purpose and it reflects a definite truth um, 
in a parable, not everything has, it's not an allegory, so not everything has to represent something. Parables are not constrained in this way. The elements of the story of the parable can be entirely fictional and entirely unrelated to reality, or they may be entirely rooted in a reality. And it really doesn't matter to the reader whether or not they're rooted in a reality or, or they're completely fictional, because we're just trying to draw the lesson. The lesson is the point. But so often we make parables allegories. And we say everything has to symbolize something. And then we get ourselves in deep interpretive binds because now we've got crazy symbol, uh, symbolism. And, uh, and, and next thing you know, we, we are trying to figure out how the parable of the, of, of the prodigal son works with the older son that stayed and the younger son that went and, and, uh, and the older son and the younger son and, and, and how does this relate to redemption? What, what, what do you mean the younger son? He's a son, but he left and, and, and now we're trying to deal with redemption or, or the, uh, another one that I heard not too long ago was the parable of the Good Samaritan and that everyone's trying to figure out who the innkeeper is symbolically. The innkeeper is just a part of the story. He has no symbolic purpose. His purpose is because you need someone to sit in the inn to, to care for the man. That, that, that is the purpose of the innkeeper. Uh, he, he, it's not an allegory. As a matter of fact, the whole, the, the, I went to a conference and the whole thing was, uh, be the innkeeper, be the innkeeper, be the keeper of the inn. And, 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 you know, likening them to the ministers of the gospel. Well, that's fine if you want to think that, but that's not what the Bible's saying. It's, it's not there. It's not there. It's a parable. The point of the parable, the only point of the parable is, who is my neighbor? My neighbor is the one, everyone, the ones I love. I'm to love my neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Everyone. The Samaritan was the good neighbor, but they were all neighbors. That's, that's the lesson, right? The lesson of the prodigal son is actually not about the prodigal son. It's actually about the angry son that stayed. We know that from context. That's the lesson. The lesson is the Pharisees are the angry son that's resentful at those that are, that are, that are returning to, to God. And they're resentful because uh, they want immoral people to be punished, not to be forgiven. That's the point of the parable. But if we allegorize everything, then we lose, not, not only do we lose the lesson, but we get ourselves into theological hot water. Try to allegorize Jesus' parables about the sheep and the shepherd in John 10, and you'll get yourself into some very confusing places. Some very confusing places. Now, that means that in parables, we are determining what's, uh, what's real and what's not, and there are prophetic elements to parables. And the prophetic elements are oftentimes not the lesson of the parable, but they are things which are consistent with our understanding of parables. So what do we do in parables? Well, we never use a parable to establish prophetic pro- prophecies. We only use parables to um, draw out parallels to prophecies that are established. In other words, we've been talking recently, just a few weeks ago in Luke 19, chapters 11 through 27, uh, in our Sunday evening service, about the... A nobleman who went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. And while he was there, he left his servants, right? And we said that the whole point, the the lesson of that parable is that the servants need to be busy about the, the work of the master because... When the master returns, he will deal out rewards and, he will, and, and others will suffer loss. That's the point of the parable. Now, everything else is maybe true, maybe not. Maybe should be linked, maybe shouldn't. In this particular parable, because we know prophecy, we can link things a bit closer. We know that Jesus Christ is going to go and, and receive for himself a kingdom, right? He's doing that right now. He died on the cross. He ascended into heaven. He's returning for his own. And so there are some links there to prophetic elements that we can draw out, but only because we have clearer prophetic teaching that makes those links possible. That, I hope that makes sense. So we need to be very careful with parables. We need to be very careful when we look at parables and we seek to draw out prophetic understanding because parables don't have to be accurate. They can just be stories. Stories about people that didn't exist, things that didn't happen, and that the people, the, 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 the supporting cast don't have to matter because there's one point to that parable. One more. Prophecies in dreams and in ecstasies. Prophecies in dreams and in ecstasies. 
Dreams and visions are in many ways the primary method of prophetic utterance. From Balaam to Ezekiel to Daniel to John on the Isle of Patmos as he wrote Revelation, it was all seen through visions and ecstasies. And I mention this only to remind us that it exists as a default method of prophetic utterance within which we'll see symbolism and type anti-type fulfillments and such. But there is no special treatment necessarily of the dream and the vision. We, we assume literally that he's having this dream and this vision. We assume that he is literally telling us what he's seeing and then we draw out what he's seeing and we would symbolize it as is necessary. If God employs symbolic visions, that's fine, that's good. We interpret the vision as literally as we can, assuming that what they, what they saw is what they're telling us they saw. And then it gives us the freedom within the freedom of the Holy Spirit to draw out the symbols, to draw out the allegories, to draw out the meanings, and to link them to clearer prophetic utterances. Okay, let's finish with the rules. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-20 through 20 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We find out here that God has a meaning that we are to draw out. That prophecy is not for you or I to just interpret willy-nilly however we feel like it, but that there's a point, there's a purpose, there's a design. God has something He's trying to communicate and He wants us to know it. So how do we know it? Well, first, rules for interpreting prophecies. Interpret literally, historically, grammatically, contextually, and prayerfully. Keep prophecy in its context. Who's the audience? Who is the prophecy being spoken unto? Is it to a nation? Is it to a person? Know who it's being spoken to and keep it within the context of who it's being spoken unto. Unless there's some reason to divert the meaning or broaden the meaning, don't let it be broadened or diverted. Assume that God means what he said. Know the background of the prophecies. Know why it was given. Know to what end it was given. Stay loyal to that end as the prophecy unfolds. In other words, a lot of times, like in Daniel 9, we'll talk about Daniel 9 in the 70 weeks of Daniel. Daniel 9 says specifically what this prophetic revelation is for. To be an end of God's people, to be an end of the holy city, Jerusalem. So that's all well and good. But then as prophetic revelation unfolds, people say, oh, nope, this is not about the holy people, and this is not about the holy city of Jerusalem, this is about the church. Well, wait a minute. When did we divert from the purpose in Daniel chapter 9? When did the purpose in Daniel chapter 9 transform? Why wouldn't God have said it in Daniel 9 if, he, if, if that wasn't His purpose? We need to keep the purpose consistent as prophetic revelation is growing. Keep the, the, the statements about the prophecies consistent and clear. When a prophecy seems to fit with a broader and clearer teaching, we uh, allow that prophecy to sit in it properly. When it does not seem to fit, we need to rethink it within the rules to keep consistency with our interpretation. Prophecy is never just interpreted within, with reference to itself. If we can think of it this way, all of the scriptural prophecy is one body of truth, right? Because the, the Bible is a unified book. It's all pointing to the same end. It's not shooting in a bunch of different directions. It's not a firework. It's pointed. It's directed. Prophecy is all headed toward one goal. Know the goal. The goal is clearly stated in Scripture and allow prophecy to naturally work itself toward that goal. Interpret consistently. Secondly, prophecy has a harmony to it. Allow the prophecy to have that harmony. That's what I was just talking about. I got a little ahead of myself. Allow prophecy to have that harmony of all working toward this goal. Third point. Interpret Christologically. Prophecy is about Christ. That's why it exists. It exists to teach us about Christ. Pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, pre-wrath, post-trib. I don't really care. I have an opinion, but I don't really care. What can we learn about Christ? Seven years of tribulation, antichrist, beasts, Babylon, spiritual Babylon, physical Babylon. Lots and lots of interesting stuff there. I have my opinions, but I don't really care. What can I learn about Christ? What does it teach me about my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? What does it mean for today? What does it mean for me today? What should I do today? What does it mean for the future? Who is Christ going to be? 
What is he going to do? How is he going to do it? His kingdom is coming and it is sure. So get on his side today. Well, pastor, are you saying prophecy doesn't matter? No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is the future, the future is my hope. But all, all of the, this stuff about the future, prophecy is not meant to tell me the future. Prophecy is meant to teach me of Christ. Okay? That's the idea. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, we see this beautiful passage about salvation. It says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Do you know that that's what prophecy is actually teaching us? The sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now that glory naturally comes with a judgment to those who are not on Christ's side. So we learn of the judgment as well. But what are we learning about? The sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. We've seen a, a glimmer. We've, we've seen the sufferings of Christ and we've gotten a taste of the glory. But the glory is yet to come, isn't it? Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The prophecies that foretold of Christ's suffering, of his, of, of, of his victories, of the joys that are to come, are for us to teach us of Him. To teach us of Him. Four. Remember to account for the unique elements of prophetic utterance and writing. Everything that we've talked about. Time. Double reference, typology, symbology. These should be accounted for. Is it possible that one prophecy may have near and far fulfillments? What can we learn about the near fulfillment from, or the far fulfillment from its near fulfillment? Is it possible that one prophecy may have time gaps between events? Would such time gaps allow for some consistency? Consider our dispensational framework to determine how God was dealing with man at the time the prophecies were given, how those prophecies fit into the broader narrative. If he was giving the prophecy explicitly to Israel at the time of Israel, then is it going to be literally fulfilled to Israel? Remember that the nature of progressive revelation is such that we know more than they did then. Always look to build and grow on the amount of information from generation to generation, but don't discount the older stuff just because you've got newer stuff. And those are the rules. With this, now we are going to get into a few more foundational concepts of themes in prophecy. We're going to talk about the kingdom, and we're going to talk about the covenants. And as we talk about the kingdom, and as we talk about the covenants, that is going to help us understand why it is that we see prophecy unfolding the way it does. Because God has made claims, God has made promises, and God has a design, and the prophecies that we'll study are the unfolding of his kingdom design and of the covenants that he's made.